welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. We are going to start a, a very brief, uh, at least relatively speaking, um, series, uh, probably four, four weeks, and I've called it Fluid, uh, Living in a Changing World. Um, some of you, I'm looking around and thinking, cripe, some of you aren't even born when this happened, but um, some of you may have remembered a movie called Waterworld. Um, it hit our screens in 1995, starred Kevin Costner in the lead role. Um, it's a post-apocalyptic science fiction film set in the distant future. Apparently, tw- uh, 2500 is the year that it's supposed to be set in. And some of you also maybe remember a line from Dylan's famous uh, song, Times Are Changing, and he said uh, that we have to accept that the waters around us have grown. And uh, in this movie, the waters around the human race have Grown. The polar ice caps apparently have melted, and the sea level has, written, has risen 7,600 meters, covering nearly all of the Earth's surface. surface. And the film centers on a kind of an anti-hero simply known as the Mariner, who is, of course, Kevin Costner. Now, to be truthful, it was probably a one-star movie, maybe a two-star material. Um, but what I want you to do, if you did happen to see that movie, is imagine what it would be like living in an aqua world, where everything is fluid and nothing is fixed. There's no fixed, navigable features as there is in a land-based world. Everything is in the constant process of change. And what I want to do with you tonight and just leading into the next couple of weeks is use that image and suggest to you that we live metaphorically in a world equivalent to Kevin Costner's water world. Um, By that I mean things are changing and are fluid. There's virtually nothing that is fixed. Experts in almost any field you care to name are saying that we're living in the midst of phenomenal change. Not just in change, actually. Some people are trying to say, look, we're living in more than change. Some people have settled on the word transition, and by that they mean when change itself is changing. So we aren't talking about just, you know, exponential sort of, you know, progressive change. We are talking about dramatic, even traumatic, exponential change, world-turned-upside-down change. Some people have used words like churn or blur to try and describe the pace of what is happening in our world. Now, it's not entirely unique. There have been other times in history when change rates have simply gone off the scale. Um, For those of you who know anything about Daniel's world, Daniel experienced a season of that kind of change. I want to read to you the very first two verses of the book of Daniel. Sometimes we read over these verses and don't even think about them. You know, it's kind of just an introduction to get into the material, but it's incredibly important. And it starts off and says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, and he carried them into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. 
as I say, easy to pass over, kind of think, oh, yeah, yeah, that's the historical setting for the book of Daniel. But what you have to understand is that event, those couple of verses, turned Daniel's world upside down. The world that he had known up to this point is overwhelmed, submerged beneath a seascape of change. Everything that he knew, everything that was established, familiar, traditional, was simply swept away by the Babylonian tsunami that overwhelmed Daniel's city and world. All of the things that he had navigated his life by were simply removed. And I'm suggesting to you tonight and the next few nights that we live in a world of similar transition. A time like Daniel's in which all of the things that in times past we used to regulate and navigate our lives are in the process of being submerged by a tsunami of change. Some of you won't understand this, but maybe a couple of you will be old enough to click on to what I'm saying. But the Janet and John world of my childhood no longer exists. It has simply been swept away. Whatever field you care to name, rapid, overwhelming change uh, is characteristic of that era. The, the economic landscape um, has undergone revolutionary impact uh, of e-commerce. Um, some of you might know I'm an avid reader. Uh, I have a substantial library. I've collected books for nigh on 40 years, but my rate of buying at least hard copy books has dramatically tailed off. The, nearly all of the books that I buy now are e-books. I have them on, on my Kindle, and hard copy is becoming virtually extinct. I, I didn't realize how this has changed me so much, except for a couple of weeks back, I wanted a book, and I thought, oh, I, I need that for what I'm doing. And I went on to Amazon to get it, and it's not on ebook. It's not on Kindle. And I found myself saying, oh, come on. I'm going to have to wait two weeks for this. <laughs> I, I'm used to, as you are, having it in 20 seconds. And, and suddenly I realized how impacted I have been. I mean, bookshops are becoming an extinct species. Who goes to bookshops these days? Not so many people. We just do it online. And, and that's true of every field. Political landscape has altered dramatically. You know, again, I mean, this might say something more about my age than anything else, but when I was a kid, the biggest decision that the map makers had to make was whether to color the British Empire red or maybe choose another color. Nowadays, new countries and regions popping up with unbelievable regularity. Nations like Andorra, Kyrgyzstan, Burkina Faso, and others that we used to know by other names that now change their names. Myanmar, Sri Lanka, and on and on and on it goes. The scientific landscape functions at warp speed, and new discoveries and inventions are tripping over one another to make their way to the start line. The moral landscape is unrecognizable from my parents' generation. They thought gay meant happy, and they thought LGBT was an acrostic for let's buy bigger trucks. The spiritual landscape is also unrecognizable. When I was a kid, 50% of children were in Sunday school. Today, I, I don't know what percentage that would be, less than 5%, I suspect. And today, when people talk about spirituality, if they do at all, it's not at all guaranteed that they're referencing Christianity. It's probably much more like, uh, likely to be some Eastern religion or some New Age pursuit. 
we are living in a world that has dramatically changed. We're living in a cultural water world. And it's an incredibly uncomfortable world for many of us. We aren't keen on water images. When we pay a person a compliment, we might say they're well-grounded. They're solid as a rock. We want our contracts watertight, our plans waterproof. We don't like people who are wishy-washy. We don't like truth that's watered down. A person that's confused is all at sea. We like solid images. It's clear that we prefer solid over fluid. As much as we like solid ground and our feet on terra firma, that's not what we have in our present world, in our present culture. We are afloat. We are in a fluid water world. Now, navigating in a water world is incredibly different from navigating on land. On land, you've got fixed points that help us get our bearings. There are mountains and rivers and bluffs and valleys that we can orientate ourselves by and within that landscape. Maps are available that accurately describe the given features of a landscape and make it relatively easy to orientate ourselves within the area portrayed by the map. On a seascape, there are no fixed points. Everything is fluid and changing. Waves and tides and currents come and go. What was there one minute is no longer there the next. Maps are completely useless. Leonard Sweet, who is a futurist, says, a sea, of change, a sea change of transition and transformation is birthing a whole new world and a whole new set of ways of making our way in the world. We have moved from the solid ground of terra firma into the tossing seas of terra aqua. The question I would like to explore with you over the next few weeks is how do you negotiate in a world like that? How do you respond to a season when even change itself is changing? I guess there are always ways of responding to change. There are, of course, people who hide their head in the proverbial sand and deny that anything is happening at all. Um, the Grateful Dead have a line in one of their songs, denial ain't just a river in Egypt. And uh, denial's not a great strategy. Problem is, when you're hiding your head in the sand, that you leave a vital part of your anatomy exposed, and it's liable to be severely kicked by reality. There's another group, and they desperately try to turn the clock back. They resist change. Robertson Davies says, the world is full of people whose notion of a satisfactory future is a return to an idealized past. Well, that's not possible. I'm sorry, as attractive as that might be for some of us, that's not possible. It might be desirable, but it's not possible. Daniel could not go back. Jerusalem was destroyed, and there was literally nothing to go back to. The reality is you and I have no choice but to acknowledge that things are dramatically changing and then work out how we negotiate the change. God, God wasn't shocked by Daniel's circumstances. He was, in fact, behind them. Divine judgment had fallen on Daniel's people and on Daniel's city, and even though he was not personally responsible, he was caught up in its outworkings. In the same way, I don't think that God is wringing his hands with concern in heaven about the pace of change on earth. He is not at sea in a culture that is fluid. He can walk on water. He can speak to the wind and the waves and still the storm. He works in the midst of the sea. 
Psalm 107 verse 23 and 24 says, Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they shall see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. I think God has a purpose and a plan in this fluid culture of ours and that if we can get on board with it, maybe we too will see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. You know, the truth of the matter is that Daniel actually thrived in Babylon. In the midst of the change and the chaos, he became a shaping force in that culture. And I believe that we can do the same and be the same in ours only, however, if we are very intentional about learning to negotiate, negotiate our way in, in a water world. So as I say, over the next couple of weeks, I want to talk to you about some essentials for thriving in a seascape. The first thing that navigating in a water world requires is that we have or locate a fixed point, a place that can be located at any time and at any place. Now, the reality is that can't be found on the constant changing surface. It actually has to be found in the heavens. You know, for sailors since antiquity, that fixed reference point was a star called Polaris. We sometimes call it the North Star. For those of you who are not aware, Polaris is the brightest star in a constellation called Ursa Minor. Some of you will see in the sky the dippers, you know, the big dipper, the, the little dipper. Well, the North Star is up there on the right in that constellation of Ursa Minor. Now, because Polaris lies nearly in a direct line with the axis of the Earth's rotation above the North Pole. It stands almost motionless in the sky, and the stars of the northern sky appear to rotate around it. So naturally then, it was used by mariners to locate their position and to navigate by. And it became, in Old English, it became the, the ship's star. The northern star then became a symbol of steadfastness. John Keats, the poet, started one of his poems by saying, Bright star, would I were steadfast as thou. And in Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar, he has Caesar refusing to grant a pardon to some character and saying to this character, I am as constant as the northern star of whose true fixed and resting quality there is no fellow in the firmament. The skies are painted with unnumbered sparks. They are all fire and everyone doth shine, but there is but one in all doth hold his place. So in the world. So here's... Shakespeare talking about this one steadfast fixed star. Out on a fluid seascape in our culture, our Polaris, our northern star is a person. It's Jesus Christ. He's known in Scripture as the morning star in 1 Peter chapter, sorry, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, and the day star in Revelation. 22.16, and those, neither of those scriptures are a, revel, are a relation or reference to Polaris. You know, metaphorically speaking, we can see Jesus as the one who is steadfast, to whom we can look and, and, and have our fixed point, the certain fixed point, the one who's steadfast, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I'd like to suggest to you that if you try and navigate in a changing world by any other point. If you try and build your life around any other idea, concept, or thing than Jesus Christ, you'll find yourself lost. 
There are people who build their lives around the material wealth. There are people who build their lives around beauty and fame and education and family. And I'm not suggesting that any of those things are bad in and of themselves. I'm just simply saying to you they are not sufficient things. They are not fixed things. Wealth can disappear. Beauty fades. Fame diminishes. Education can be outdated. Social status can be lost. Family members can leave or, or ultimately die. None of those things are fixed. You know, our culture, by and large, has rejected the heavens as a point of navigation for life. And so, in the West, at least, we find ourselves with no objective fixed points by which to orientate our lives. And we are reduced, in our society, to floating on a sea of relativistic, subjective opinions and feelings. We have nothing better. Follow your heart, they tell us. Oh, my goodness. Follow your heart. Biblically speaking, the Bible says the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who would want to follow it? You follow that, you're going to end up in big trouble. But you get people like Ellen, you know, giving uh, uh, commencement addresses or, or um, graduation addresses, and she tells them, you know, follow your heart. Well, I'll tell you, it's a sure recipe for disaster. <laughs> it would be funny if it wasn't tragic. Because people just buy it, you know. Oh, yeah, 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 follow my art. Listen, those of you who have done any training in terms of airline pilots, you are told exactly the opposite. Trust your instruments. Even when your feelings and perceptions, your heart is saying something else. Follow the objective, not the subjective. It's much more likely, they tell you, that your feelings are faulty rather than your instruments. Apparently, it's a very, very difficult skill to master. Because you can feel that you're in the midst of clouds where you can't see any navigable points. You feel that you're off course or you're tipping upside down. And there is this incredible desire to write the aircraft according to your heart. But the instruments are saying something different. And part of the training is follow the objective. Follow the instruments. Don't trust your heart. Telling people who are completely lost in the bush to follow their heart is total nonsense. That's what got them lost in the first place. People who are lost need a compass. They need a north star to orientate themselves and get their bearings. And I want to tell you, without apology, Jesus is the only fixed point. Christianity is a relational religion, if I can say that. Everything depends on the administration and the management of that key relationship. To lose sight of Jesus, I'm sorry, is to soon be lost. Peter took his eyes off Jesus and quickly began to sink beneath the swirling, surging waters of his present seascape. You know, there are so many people, including Christians or professing Christians, and they're much, much more concerned with managing or maintaining relationships with other people and sometimes even with pets than they are with the fixed point of Jesus Christ. And then they wonder, why does life go round and round in circles? Why do I go nowhere at all? Listen, like the wise men, we are to be a people who follow a star, charting the course of our lives by the coordinates of Christ and doing it as a daily exercise, as a daily discipline. It's looking and listening on a daily basis. 
There's a wonderful passage in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4. It's a servant song. It's actually a song that's primarily about Messiah, the servant of God, but beyond that servant to his servants, you and I. And it says this, He wakes me up in the morning. He wakes me up. He opens my ear to listen as one ready to take orders. Here is one who with regularity recalibrated his life to that North Star on a daily basis. He looked and he listened. Now, I don't mean to suggest that every morning as you get up, God will give you specific orders for that day. Now, I I know there are people who think that God tells them what to wear in the morning and what to eat for breakfast. I've met some of them. In fact, some of them have come up to me after I've made statements like I'm just making now and said, he tells me what to wear. And I look and think, no, he didn't. (laughs) I'm sorry, but you've got it wrong. He's way more creative. But having said that, I don't also want to be a person who says, well, you know, just read the Bible, pray, don't, don't expect God to interact with you. He doesn't do that. He only does that with the Pope. I remember one of my friends saying to somebody, you know, that God spoke to him and somebody said, really? He's speaking to you? What's, what's is, is the Pope's line down? Listen, God does speak. He's a God who speaks. He's a God who who directs. And, and, you know, somebody will come up to me and tell, I know a story of, you know, God did tell somebody what to wear. Yeah, I, I mean, I know those stories too. All right? I, I understand that, you know, God can do what he likes and regularly does without consulting with me or you. However, I do think on a daily basis, part of the discipline of navigating a seascape is recalibrating our lives with that North Star morning by morning, allowing him to interact with us when, when, when he wants to. And, you know, I can tell you stories in my life where God has spoken to me quite dramatically, altered the course of my life, and I look back and think, I thank God that I was in a position just posturing myself before him that allowed him to speak into those moments. In the midst of Babylonian life, with all its dazzle and its brightness, Daniel developed a discipline of prayer and listening. And we know from the story that three times a day, he went, opened his windows, orientated himself toward Jerusalem, and he prayed. It says in Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, in his upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before God, as was his custom since the early days. He, he developed an ethos about his life, a custom, a habit about his life, whereby he orientated himself to that North Star. I'm not suggesting that we need to pray either three times a day or facing in a certain direction. The point that I'd like you to draw out of that passage is not some blueprint in terms of how you're supposed to do it, but simply that Daniel developed an ethos, a habit of prayer, of recalibrating his compass to the North Star on a daily basis. I don't think, by the way, that Daniel heard God's voice every day either, and that every day he was seeing amazing visions and getting incredible prophecies. What we fail to understand is sometimes between one chapter of Daniel and another, there are 30 years. But constantly he developed the ethos of being available. And because he was available, God did speak to him sometimes in dramatic ways with incredible visions. The daily discipline of orientating himself toward God allowed him to be available to God's voice on the occasions when it did come. And Daniel survived in the blur, in the churn, in the transition of life in Babylon. 
in the midst of the push and pull of civil life and politics, he became, uh, he had these regular times of recalibrating his compass with the North Star. You know, Daniel became known as a person who had an excellent spirit. That fascinates me. It says it in Daniel chapter 3. Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and, and, and set traps because an excellent spirit was in him. Several times, actually, it speaks that of Daniel. He had an excellent spirit. And I looked up what that word meant. And it's an Aramaic adjective that basically means preeminent, outstanding, exceptional. But it has the idea of jutting over. In the same way that a bush might hang over a wall, jut over the wall and drop its fruit on the other side. That's the kind of image that we have of Daniel in the spiritual realm. He had something that, that jutted out of his life and it, and it had to do with this man's relationship with God. It was the first thing that you bumped into when you bumped into Daniel. I don't mean that you physically saw something, but you became immediately aware that there was something profoundly different about this man, something profoundly spiritual about him. The thing that jutted out from his life was spiritual. Now, this might sound a bit mystical, and I'm, I'm probably taking a risk in saying what I'm about to say, but the reality is when you meet some people, the thing that strikes you, what juts out from them, if I can put it that way, isn't always spiritual. Sometimes I've met people and I would say in hindsight, the thing that jutted out and struck me was, was their intellect. They, they had cultivated it. They'd cultivated the mind, uh, the life of the mind. And when you encounter them, you very quickly become aware that's the preeminent part of who they are. That's what they've cultivated and it can be a bit intimidating as they wax eloquent about, you know, something that you just, you know, straight over your head. And you go away thinking, oh, that's a mind, an excellent mind. There are some people, maybe children, perhaps, or teenagers, and you say the thing that you encounter actually is a will, a very, very strong will. And the thing that juts out and hits you is that willfulness, that stubborn, willful, opinionated, and you walk away and think, whew, I just got hit by something. And it's the will that juts out. Unfortunately, for a lot of people in our culture, what juts out is their fleshly life. That's what they cultivate. The beauty, the sensuality, the thing that this culture says is indispensable, the sex appeal. They've given themselves to the pursuit of the flesh, and you come away with an encounter with them, very aware that there's something, and I don't mean sexual when I say sensual, but I mean sensual. With Daniel, the thing that jutted out was profoundly, deeply spiritual. He was a man who had cultivated a relationship with God over eight decades. He didn't run for three weeks, three months, or 30 years, he ran in the purposes of God for eight decades. And when you came into his presence, you were immediately aware of something profoundly deep about him. He was a man who exemplified what Paul talked about when, we, when he exhorted fellow believers to walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Daniel lived navigating by the North Star. He flourished in a seascape, without a relationship with the North Star, Jesus, the best we can hope for, really, is pretty much simply stay afloat. 
Our culture has no harbor, no purpose, no, what we would say, teleos. We're not heading to anything. We don't think there's anything to head to. We have no harbor. That's effectively where we are in our Western culture. We've got more to live with and less to live for than almost any other culture in history. We are afloat on a relativistic tide that tells you whatever you think and desire must be, validate, must be valid and then must be validated by others. That's unsustainable. Christ isn't. I'm probably going to take a real risk here. I really hope that you hear my heart, and I'll say it in closing, and I've got the car out there running. <laughs> and I will be following you know, um, the example of my car and running when I say this. But the subjective nonsense of our culture, I find astounding, astoundingly stupid. A couple of months ago, I read about a, a man who has decided he's an elf. He's always wanted to be an elf. He always felt he was an elf. Don't laugh, it's true. He spent in the vicinity, I think, of 30 grand having elf-like features fashioned on both his face, uh, le legs lengthened so that he would be much taller, ears pointed. He wants to be an elf. He feels like he's an elf. Now, you laugh. But how long before we have to put elf bathrooms in our buildings? We have people who are able-bodied. There's nothing wrong with them. But they feel like they're disabled. And they want to be treated as disabled people. We've had some people who have gone so far in that process that one of them blinded themselves with acid so that they actually would be what they always have felt they are. But others are able-bodied but want to be treated as people who have uh, disabilities. They want to be in wheelchairs. Now, all of us shake our heads at that material and think, holy cows. But that's what they feel subjectively, and they say to you and me, who are you to tell me what I feel? What I feel has to be validated. We have a person uh, not that long ago who was thrown out of an Afro-American organization. She was actually leading it. Uh, she, she's white. And she simply said, but I feel black. Well, everybody said, well, look, sorry, sweetheart, but you're not. You're not black, you're white, and you can't fulfill that role. This might hit hard and hit home, but there are some people who think they're fat. We look on and say, you're killing yourself. It's, it's called anorexia. They think they're fat. In, in them. I, I dealt with a, a young girl, it was a tragic story, and I remember sitting with her, and, and, and she's talking about how big she is, and I'm thinking, this is bizarre. And I said, I gave her a piece of paper and a pen, and I said, draw me your body image. I'm trying to get my head around this. And she drew this figure and, and had this distended, enormous stomach. Now, I'm looking at this girl. She is this close to death. She's been admitted to hospital numerous times. And I'm saying, but sweetheart, you, 
your skin and bone, you're dying. And she said, but in my head, I am fat. Subjectively, I'm fat. I said, objectively, you're dying. And all of us recognize how tragic that is. Now, here's where I get into trouble. And you know where I'm heading. Why is it that when somebody says, I feel like I'm a man, or I feel like I'm a woman, our whole culture bows and says, whatever you say. What is it about sex in our culture that changes the whole game? And all of these other things, you laughed when I talked about the elf. You probably shook your head in wonder when I talked about the white woman who said she's black, and you tragically feel the the horror of somebody who thinks they're fat when they're dying. But when I go onto this ground, I'm on thin ice. I'm, I'm liable to be labeled a bigot. Answer me this, and nobody ever has. Why is it that I can change my body to fit with my subjective feelings, either by surgery or by chemical means, and that is totally liberated, but if I suggest that they change their mind to fit with their body, I'm a bigot. Why? Now listen, I don't want to come across as somebody who's unfeeling, uncaring, because I believe everybody, from the, from, from the elf to people who are caught in the horror and torment of gender dysphoria, I believe they're human beings, created in the image of God, greatly loved by the Father. And they should never, ever be treated with anything less than the dignity they deserve. But let's not take that and make it the subjective soup of absolute stupidity. <laughs> we live in a world that has gone completely nuts. We've lost, we've lost every fixed point, and we are at sea in a subjective seascape that, as I said, this is what I feel. You must validate it. Well, I don't want to be unkind, but I can't. I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm not trying to be, you know, I, I, I feel so deeply for people who are tormented like that. Most of you will be quite aware that the transgendered people, the dysphoria, 40% attempt suicide. The, the, the rate among the straight community is 4%, 10, 10 times more. It's a tormenting thing. And, and that, that rate is not just hyped by bullying and, 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 you know, I can't find my place because you won't give it to me. I know that those factors are involved, but it doesn't explain that. There is just such a torment involved in this whole process that I feel profoundly and deeply for those people. But I want to tell you, I do not think we do them a service by simply saying, whatever you say, we will validate. Because we don't do that with anorexia. With anorexia, we all stand off and say, I'm sorry, sweetheart, but we're putting you in hospital. 
We've got to do something to stop this. Because what you see subjectively is not right. You are flying your aircraft upside down, heading to the ground big time. See the instruments, and we happen to be the instruments, our culture. The voices happen to be your instruments. You're upside down, you're heading for destruction. And all of us applaud that, but not in this field. In this field, I want to tell you, in this field, if I do this talk out there, I'll, I'll be crucified. And some of you have the capacity to crucify me by simply just taking it on your phones and saying what I've just said. And I'll be in trouble over my, over my head. But how do you keep silent? How do you not say something in a world that is being tipped on its head and everybody's just nodding and going along like lemmings over a cliff? Wow. Wow. That wasn't in my notes. <laughs> we live in an incredible time. Desperately, desperately, we need Daniels. People who will orientate themselves to the northern star will live not in judgmental, uh, you know, standoff, damn Babylon kind of approach. People like Daniel who get in the midst of the Babylonian culture and stand true, stand tall, have light through them and, sh and, and ultimately seek to shape it in a godly and good way. Did, didn't we used to sing a song years ago in children's church, dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone? Yeah? All three people were in the same <laughs> class as I was. Anyway. That's enough for tonight. That'll give you something to think about and talk about and choke over your coffee. Um, why don't we stand, okay? <clears throat> I just want to say one more time before I run. Please, I'm not trying to be loveless. I know, I know some people in our congregation who have family members who are battling with this, agonizing over it, and their parents and folk and you know, their family agonize with it too. I'm, 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 not, um, I'm not quite sure of the word. I, I feel for them. I, I really do. And I'm not trying to make anybody's life more difficult than it is. In a crowd this size, I suspect there's probably somebody listening to me right now and you, you say to me, Don, you have no idea of the torment that I feel over this issue. And you speaking to it like that really probably doesn't help me. Um, I, I would love to think that perhaps it might. Um, and, but at the very least, hear my heart. I, I'm not condemning you to hell or anything. I'm not suggesting that God doesn't love you and have purpose for you, and purpose including eternity with all of your struggles, because the reality is we all struggle in different ways, okay? I'm simply not willing to say to you, yeah, you really are fat. Why don't you diet? I'm not willing to say that to you. Because while that might immediately bring some satisfaction to you, it doesn't alter the truth of the fact that something is significantly disordered and desperately needs help. And for better or for worse, that's where I'm coming from on that issue. Okay? I'd very rarely talk like this. 
But over the last couple of months, you know, this whole thing has just been weighing on me so much as I look at a culture that just is being led along by the, by the ear, just dragged into subjective confusion and nonsense. And, uh, you know, sometimes you just want to say, stop, time out, seriously? And, and perhaps above all, to you who live in the midst of a culture that says, you're a bigot if you say anything about anybody else's life. Who are you to judge? Sometimes we've got to be armed. You, you might not be struggling with anything like that. And actually, you might be thinking, right on, you, you say that. But even for you, I would say, you know, yeah, grab the truth. By all means, grab the truth. If you can't minister it with grace, don't minister it at all. Because we don't need any more broken people. Our goal is to heal people and, 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 and see them saved and turn around and restored and wherever we can helped. And to do that, you actually have to diagnose the issue. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.